I like to read a lot of fiction. And part of that is because I was an English major in college and we just, you know, college for some people is like math and science and these sorts of things that I, I don't want to trouble myself with. Others might. For me, it was grammar and reading stories. And, and what's better than that? Well, as we study literature, we, we assign different genres to literature to help us understand what's going on in the story. So sometimes we'll read historical fiction and sometimes we'll read history and other times we'll read someone's letters or poetry. And then we have subgenres along the way. So there's not just fiction, but there's historical fiction over against fantasy fiction. And breaking it down even more, we can start to detect different patterns that emerge in these smaller sub-genres of literature. And one of those patterns is called um, the... Oh, why, why am I forgetting it now? I, I got on this, but it's, it's called, uh, well, it gets to the development of an individual. Oh, this is the name of it. It's a coming of age story. Okay, I should have written that down. Uh, I guess college didn't help me as much as I, I thought. But we have these coming of age stories where you have these individuals who kind of begin as your everyday guy and they go through this series of events and they emerge a completely different individual. Well, even within these stories, you know, that might be Little Red Riding Hood or that might be Bilbo Baggins, but you have different individuals and there's a common pattern that these individuals experience and we call it in this literary world, the hero's journey. So this afternoon when you're, you know, digesting your lunch, well, after our meeting, Google the hero's journey and you can see this pattern. And then the next time you watch Star Wars or something like that, you'll be able to trace this. But it usually starts out with this character who's in the ordinary world. And then there's this opportunity that's before them. They generally start by rejecting the opportunity for the adventure, but they meet with this older mentor. And then they cross the threshold to the extraordinary world. And eventually they get to a point where there's death or, or at least near death. Okay. So um, with Bilbo, we might see this on a few occasions, but one where he's lost in, in the mountains, essentially, and he discovers this ring. But there's this death or near-death experience, and then that usually gets heightened to a true death or, or very close to true death. For Bilbo, if you remember this, we get to a point where, where Bilbo um, is essentially dead or as good as dead. But those near-death experiences are quickly followed by a resurrection experience. So with Bilbo, you have him waking up in a bed or, or Frodo when he's being chased by ring wraiths. You know, he's, he's been stabbed, he's dying, but then he crosses the river. Okay, and that's somewhat, you know, John Bunyan or, or pseudo-biblical imagery where you cross the river into this resurrection, new life experience. You wake up and you're, you're a new creature. You're a new individual. Well, I think that if we were to look at our own lives, our own autobiographies, we would start to trace these coming-of-age experiences, but we'd 
what we'd come to find is that we're never done. And in fact, we could probably identify multiple death and resurrection-like experiences in our lives along the way. Now, sometimes this is going to be a physical, ordinary, death-like and resurrection experience. So if you undertook sports or something like that in high school, maybe you were pushed so hard on the basketball court that you felt like you were dead and you had a horrible time, but then you found out by the end of the season, you, you were a better basketball player because of that death-like experience in, in then the raising power of the coach as he continues to coach you. Well, we start to get these in little snippets, but then we also get it in larger areas of our life as we go through genuine grief and sorrow and loss. And, and the older that we get, and, and hearing from some of you who are older than I, there, there are many of those disheartening, death-infusing situations. And what's unique about being a living human whose story is not over yet is that we don't always see the resurrection moments as clearly as we do when we're reading a, a whole fiction story. The, the life-giving power of that death experience rarely shines fully or can be seen clearly while we're still in this life. Or, or at least not while we're within five or 10 or 15 years of that experience. The life-giving power of that is often not seen until we're way on the other side. Well, I think that as we read this kind of thing in literature and we experience snippets of it in our lives, as we read the Bible, we start to see it there too. And as we read it there, we're invited to reflect theologically on the experiences of our lives. And very often we do this in terms of questioning how we might respond immediately after something terrible happens to us. And, and we get stuck in that level. So for instance, um, we, we might, when we're talking to you, our children or to ourselves when, when something hasn't gone our way and we've lashed out in anger or in kind of depression or something like that, we might look at those moments and identify th ways that we should have responded differently. Okay. So, so when I realize that I messed something up on our taxes and then I'm irritated with my wife, I need to look at that and say, you, you shouldn't be irritated with your wife because you're just lashing out on her for something you did. You know, we'll, we'll look at these microscopic in the moment levels and, and that's good and right. But what I want to encourage us to do is to span out and look at the bigger picture and try to identify not necessarily how we've responded, but how God has shown himself faithful over the long term through those death-like moments as he continually brings resurrection and new life back into us. And in fact, brings us out more strong and more faithful to him on the other side. So, so I want us to move out from the microscopic short-term reaction to, to look at the broad-term nature of God's providential care and leading in our life. And this is what we get in the book of Ruth. Now, even as we do that, we need to be reminded that when we're reading these stories in the Bible and when we look at the stories of our own lives, we're doing so 
through a lens of interpretation. We're interpreting what happened in our lives. And very often in those initial moments after something bad happened, we interpret those events in the worst, most cynical, most short-sighted ways possible. And that's why we lash out in anger and irritation is we're interpreting them only in ways that block God out of the picture. And, and we're invited in this world system to do that all the more. So whether it's a pandemic or a job loss or something else, our world system has no category for interpreting those events with the providential hand of God in view. Well, well, we've got to expand that way to start to read God's action in the story, but we also have to do so with an edge of humility, knowing that in this life, we are not always going to understand God's purposes and certainly not fully. Okay, so let me give a brief biblical example of this. I was reading a little bit from the book of Job this morning, and that story helps us out by giving us the God's eye view on these things because we get the, the throne room explanation of what's happening that Job and his people don't get. So what, what that's helping us do is hear the way people talk about things and know they're, they're wrong, okay? That's, that's most of Job, people speaking sort of right things, but they don't have the true pulse on God's providence. And that shows up right away. If you remember, you know, God says to the adversary, anything that Job physically has, you can't touch him, but anything that's blessing in his life, you can, you can take away. Well, there are all these bad things that happen on one day. This is like the worst day any humans ever had. Well, one of the servants is talking about the fact that fire came down from heaven and consumed crops and animals. And this servant says that it's the fire from God in heaven that came down. Well, because we've gotten the throne room view, we know this is the adversary at work. You know, God, God has a role in it, but we're, we're already going to start to question the way people talk about God's providence in the rest of Job because of, because of that viewpoint. Well, I've tried to encourage us to question the way that Naomi has talked about God's providence in the beginning of the book of Ruth. And, and that should just give us a, a way forward that in, is humbling as we talk about God's providence in our own life. So while I am calling us to recognize God's providence where people in our world don't care about God's providence, also know that we can't dictate what God's intents always are in his providential acting. Okay, I, I hope that makes sense, where I both, I want to push us to reflect on God's involvement in ordinary human history, but I also want to caution us to say that we don't get the final word and we don't get the full perspective. So don't, don't start interpreting every world event or event in your life and telling everyone, I know that this is what God is doing by bringing a virus here or something like that. We, we want to avoid that. But we also want to recognize that God cares and God is involved. And while we plan our ways, God directs our steps. So that's what we read in that statement of faith this morning. Well, I want us just to briefly remember what's happened at the beginning of the book of Ruth because we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks reflecting on Boaz and Ruth. And we got to the story last week where Boaz marries Ruth and they have a child. Well, if we're 
tracking a story, if this Boaz, if, if this story is just about Boaz and Ruth, the story's done. Okay, there's, there's been a problem, there's this widow, and then there's greater problem, another redeemer, but now there's that climactic meeting and there's resolution, a baby is here. Well, if the story is really about Boaz and Ruth, the story's done. But what's interesting is the story's not done. In fact, there's another major scene and it centers directly on Naomi. So multiple things times during this series, I've suggested to you that Naomi is the central figure in the story and that often we misread this book by focusing on Boaz and Ruth and Valentine's Day too much. Well, we, we, I think, have rightly reflected on the way that God used Boaz and Ruth to embody divine action along the way. But now we need to look at Naomi again, because that's the human figure who this story is really about. Okay? So, When we started, we observed this guy, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and Naomi and Malon and Kilion, their two sons, responding to the famine in the land by leaving the promised land to go to the land of Israel's enemies, Moab. And I suggested to you that this was a response that didn't include faithfulness to God. In that covenantal context, God had told them that he would use famine to humble them when they turned away from him. So when famine comes, what is the right response? Well, the right response is repentance, corporate and individual repentance. Well, these, this family left, and some people read that positively or neutrally. I'm reading it negatively. I'm saying they did a bad thing. And I'm saying that there was the kind of there's a kind of issues in Israel that even if we were to say um, famine is here, it would be okay to leave the land. We have to ask, well, why didn't all of Israel leave the land? Why didn't everyone in Bethlehem leave the land? Well, people stayed in the land and they were there when God visited the land with food. So I think the narrator is giving us clues that staying in the land, good. Stay in the land and repent, That's what God desires. Leave the land is breaking the covenantal promise and trust and faith in the covenantal God of the land. So when we hear Ruth and Naomi coming back and we see Naomi entering the village and the women praising and excited, can this be Naomi who's returned to us? I think these townspeople are saying, look at the kindness of God. Even though this lady's husband is dead and children are dead, he's brought her back. God's been faithful by bringing her back to the land. And and beyond that, he's used her to be a light to the nations. Now there's this Moabite woman who's pledged her allegiance to our people and our God, and she's coming to live in our land. Well, when they're praising the Lord, I think, in this way, Naomi responds and tells them essentially to be quiet. This, she's looking at her life and interpreting these events, saying that the Lord has turned his hand against me. He's done evil against me because I left full and I've come back empty. And on one level, there's a grain of truth there, isn't there? Her, her husband's dead. Her children are dead. And I don't think that we should downplay that. 
But I think as she's interpreting the events of her life, she's not factoring in anything about God's covenantal love and faithfulness and mercy. And she's not factoring in who she is as a covenant member. Because I think she should be saying, I, I did leave full in one way and came back empty in another way. But I also left faithless. I was empty of faith. And now I'm coming back and, and I'm broken and I'm in a bad spot. But I, I heard that God visited his people and gave them food. And, and I need that God again. And, and I need to align myself to his plans and his promises. And I need to give myself over to him. Well, we're not hearing that. So I've suggested that we should be critical of Naomi at this point. And, and in fact, it goes, it's even worse than that because we might say, we might, we might say that resonates with me. Very often, I fail to have the eyes of faith to see my weaknesses and, and what God's calling me to. But God did something to give a physical reality to her. He gave her Ruth, this lady who gave up her future hopes of a husband who gave up her people and her gods. And Ruth is standing right next to her as Naomi says, I've got nothing. I, I think that Naomi is blind to reality here. And she's blind to reality in the way that you and I are often blind to reality. One bad thing happens to us or a series of genuinely difficult things happen and, and we start to act as if God has nothing good for us anymore. And there's nothing good left in our lives. And, and then we just dwell on those negative things. And we fail to realize that God has a pattern in human history of bringing people through really hard things to revive them with resurrection life that leaves them better off than they were beforehand. Well, that, that's where Naomi's been, and we've seen some good progress in her life. We, I think we all know that understanding and repentance rarely happens in a flashbang moment. Very rarely do you and I, in one shocking moment, see our sin rightly and repent of it. Very, very rarely do we, in one counseling session, understand what God is doing in our lives and how we ought to respond understanding and belief and repentance generally occur over time and bit by bit and piece by piece. Well, all along we've tracked with Naomi, who we've seen bit by bit and piece by piece, starting to turn herself back in faith to Yahweh, to this God of Israel, this covenant God of Israel. We've seen this as she's accepted Ruth, as she started to devise a way for Ruth to have rest in the home of a husband. And as we start to hear her uttering things like, blessed be the Lord who has not abandoned his said his kindness to the living or to the dead. So we've started to see her take a radically different perspective. Well, as we get to chapter four, the end of chapter four in Ruth, we, we actually aren't going to hear from Naomi ever again. And I'll comment on that in a moment. Naomi is not going to speak another word. Instead, we have kind of bookends to where in chapter one, the ladies of the city were speaking to Naomi and she essentially shunned them and, and shut them down. 
Well, now these townspeople, these neighbor women are going to speak once again, and they are going to interpret the events in Naomi's life correctly. They're, they're going to look at Naomi's life and inform her, now that she's in a disposition to hear it, how she should be viewing the events of her life. So we'll look at these, and I'll make connections between the way that God has had emptied her as she was faithless and now has filled her. But then I want to take a step forward and talk about three levels of response that we, we ought to have to the interpretation of these events in Naomi's life. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, we discussed last week that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. Well, this, this verse kind of ends the previous scene and transitions us into this scene, but it does so with a very clear declaration of God's providential working in these ordinary human events. So this is actually the only place in the book of Ruth where the storyteller affirms that God has done something. The closest that that's come to is when Ruth, when it declares that Ruth heard that the Lord had visited the land with food. Well, now the storyteller is interpreting these events for us outright. God is involved in these events. God is the one who granted conception to this previously barren woman, and she gave birth to a son. So the, the women now are in, going to interpret the events of Naomi's life to her. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. Okay, so, so this is a connection to earlier where Naomi said, I left full and I've come back empty. There's no one in my family left. Well, now they're saying there is someone in your family left. There's a family redeemer. Now, this use of the word redeemer is not the technical legal use of redeemer that we've talked about up to this point. It's more of a conceptual and relational use because this individual, this family redeemer, we'll find out later is actually the son that was born to Ruth. He said, the Lord has not left you without a family redeemer. May his name become well known as in Israel. So these, these women are just bringing back to mind what the people at the city gate said about Boaz. May his name be great in Ephrathah. Well, now may his son's name be great in all of Israel. So they're, they're praying this blessing upon him. And they, they give this idea in verse 15, that this family redeemer, the son, will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Okay, so this lady, Naomi, who was previously bitter, whose life was too bitter for anyone to bear, well, God has worked to grant conception to her daughter-in-law so that she, Naomi, would be renewed, that her life would be renewed, and that she would be sustained in her old age. Well, in other places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, this language of life being renewed is always connected to the word of the Lord or God himself as our shepherd. So in Psalm 19, I believe, talks about the law of the Lord renewing our soul. Well, it's the same thing, renewing our life. 
And then in Psalm 23, it talks about the shepherd who renews our life, who refreshes our soul. Well, God does that through people, but it's God that's ultimately at work there. And that's what these ladies are saying. God allowed Ruth to have a son, and through this son, you will experience a kind of resurrection where you formerly felt dead, where where there was deadness of life. Now there's going to be refreshment of life. And then they go on, indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. This one has given birth to him. So, So they're just looking at the sons that she lost And they're saying, this lady, Ruth, who you ignored when you were complaining to us of your bitterness, well, now you can see that she's better than seven sons. And and of course, seven here is just kind of a figurative way about talking about the perfect number of sons. You know, she's better than the ideal family to you. She loves you. She's been covenantly faithful to you. So even though you didn't see it at the start, you can see it and affirm it now. This daughter-in-law better than seven sons. Now, it's interesting that they describe Naomi as one who loves, or as Ruth, as one who loves Naomi. In, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, this language of people loving each other is really actually pretty rare. Uh, there, there aren't that many occurrences of it. This idea of loving occurs more in terms of loving God and God loving you and generally has covenantal connotations. It's more in terms of a commitment that goes beyond obligation. So it's not mere emotion and it certainly isn't romantic love here, but over and over again where this does show up in the Bible, it's in terms of fulfillment of that second command to love your neighbor as yourself. To, to love in a sacrificial way. And what I think they're trying to describe here is a lady who has lived out God's law, who has embodied his great commands in a way that a lot of Israel was not doing. So once again, Ruth is pictured as a true Israelite. Well, later in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus God instructs Israel to love the stranger or the sojourner as themselves. Well, here the stranger and sojourner is loving the Israelite as themselves. And and I think we're just reminded once again that God is working to draw people into his people. And, And that those people, as they align themselves with God's instruction and as they embody his wisdom and love, they are counted among his people. So that's shown once again, so that this Moabite woman is better to her than seven sons because she has embodied the divine instruction that Israel and that Naomi, in fact, had failed to do for some time. In any case, they they make this point that Ruth is better than seven sons, that she loves Naomi, and that she has given birth to him. So, So this, God has used this woman that no one would expect to be used of the Lord, I think, to do something that, that's just unfathomable, to bring life where there was death, to bring fullness where there was emptiness. And once again, this is a reminder to us that God uses ordinary people and perhaps unexpected people to accomplish his purposes and his working in this world. 
And, and I think those people are us. As we think about ourselves, I think most of us would say, we're just ordinary people. Well, that doesn't mean that God can't use us to accomplish the filling, redemptive work that he's purposed in this world. Now, I, I want to keep our attention on the fact that God is providentially involved in doing it, but it's inseparable here. God uses people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Naomi responds then. Now, as I mentioned, Naomi doesn't respond with speech, but she's going to respond with divine action. Now, or with action, not divine action necessarily, but she, she's responding with action. Now, this used to trouble me. Uh, there, there are stories in the Bible that end on a note of without resolution. Like when, when someone's playing music and they don't hit the last note and it's like, but, but come on, hit, hit the last note. You know, I think the book of Jonah is like that. Read that book. And at the end, it's like, there should be another chapter here, but, but there's not. And when I was reading Ruth, when, because Naomi doesn't say a word, I kept feeling like we need another chapter here. You know, there, there's no resolution here. So she responds by taking the child and placing him in her lap and became his nanny. So she, she's caring for him and relating to him as a relative, as a family member, which shows something. I, I think it's showing she's receiving the kindness of God, okay? Um, and I, I think we need to recognize that maybe the storyteller wants us to end on a note of action and not just words, okay? So the story then would invite us to respond to God's kindness in our life with action by recognizing that kindness and receiving it and, and then acting in faithfulness because of it. That, that may be what the storyteller is trying to get across by not having Naomi say anything. Now, I think in the historical events, Naomi said something, you know, but the storyteller doesn't give us that. And, and I think the way we've got to respond to that is by simply saying, when I go through hardship, I need to work to interpret the events with the faith of these townspeople, of these other ladies. And then as I start to recognize God's kindness and faithfulness to me, I need to receive it and respond appropriately. God's concerned with our action as we move forward. I, I, that's, that's the way that I think we ought to be reading this. However, I, th I think it's still troublesome that Na Naomi doesn't say something. It, it still leaves it as if there's a chapter to be written here. And it opens our imagination to what life might be like now for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. And, and I think, though, we need to go beyond simply imagining what their life might be like as they play out the rest of their days to say that we are entering into the fifth chapter of the book of Ruth. That we get to read ourselves into this story and say that we're picking up where Naomi left off. We've picked up with the divine revelation that God is faithful to his people regardless of the hardship. So now we get to speak the words that praise God in our time of sorrow so that we get to respond appropriately with faith when we go through these death-like experiences in this life. 
I, I hope that makes sense. I, I think what the author is doing is saying, you should feel like something else should happen. And guess what? You're the person who that something else is going to happen through. You pick up Naomi's mantle and you live out the praise to the Lord that you want to hear coming from her lips. Because where, where she spoke negatively of the Lord in chapter one, and you want to hear her speak positively of the Lord in chapter four, you go and speak positively of Naomi's God. So as you're with your coworkers, you say, blessed be the Lord who has not left me without a redeemer. When you're with your family as relatives die, you say, Praise be the Lord who has not left us in death, but through a redeemer is bringing us life. I, I think that should be the step forward that we take. So in that way, look at the book of Ruth as a, a manuscript of a Shakespeare play that you discovered. And it's clear that the final act of the play has been corroded. You know, the, the, Death of time has, in whatever, moisture has wiped away the words of act four. Well, when you're, when you're reading that play with your friends and you sit around then and talk about, well, what, what happened in act four? Based on what we've learned in this coming of age of each of these individuals, what's going to happen next? And then live out that thing that happens next as you read the book of Ruth. So I think... In the end, we should look at Naomi favorably. I, I think she responds appropriately. The women then go on to say, the neighbor woman said in verse 17, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, this, this does not obviously mean literally. Na Naomi didn't birth this child, and, and Naomi's not adopting this child. That would be the wrong way to think of it. We, we need to remember that probably in, in this time, family units, like two to four generations, are kind of living something of a compound lifestyle, if, if that makes sense, to where it's not like um, Boaz and Ruth are moving, you know, to, to the opposite side of Israel because they're getting away from mother-in-law because you don't want to be too close, but they're not going so far away they'll never see her. That's not the situation. They're probably all together here. And, and Naomi has responded, and these townspeople are saying, practically speaking, Naomi, where, where you lost your children, you've now received a child. You, where you were empty, now you're full. That, that is a highlighted by the author when, it, when the author says that she placed a child in her lap. Well, when her sons died, these grown men who had wives, well, chapter one relays the response that she was left without her children. So even though they were grown, she's looking them at her, it's her children. And some of you who have grown adult children will say the same thing. You know, it, it, is sweet. I'm sure it annoys me to death, but sometimes my parents will say, you're always going to be our little boy. Well, well, that's fine. But I think that's how Naomi's felt. You know, the, these grown guys are always going to be her little boy. Well, n now there's a little boy who God has brought into her life where she can act as a mother towards that child. They named him Obed. Obed 
sounds like the word servant, so clearly an appropriate name for this son who's going to care for Naomi in her old age, sustain her in her old age. He'll be a servant to her, and in so doing, he'll serve the Lord who's bringing her to fulfillment. But then it notes that he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, we're going to talk about the genealogy next week. I I think the reason that this is highlighted here and then repeated is not only to highlight the importance of this, but to bring bring a parallel situation. In Ruth 1, Ruth had Elimelech and Malon and Kilian, and they died. Well, now the Lord is replacing them with Obed and Jesse and David. So you have this nice parallelism in the story that brings about this literary just sense of fulfillment, completion, where three were gone, now three have been restored. When we look at this journey of Naomi from empty to full, I I think that there are three levels of life or three horizons in our lives that we need to consider when we respond to this text. The first horizon or life level in which we need to respond is just our purely individual um, small microscopic level, you. So, so how do you, I, with respect to the events in my individual or family life, need to respond to this? I, I think that's on one way how we can read the book of Ruth. These things are happening to an individual family. We're reading ourselves into the story and we need to consider what do we learn about God in this book that will shape the way that I, as an individual, respond to this text, and to to the situations in my life. And I've tried to highlight that as we've gone through this, so I, I won't belabor this. But I think on that level, we should first find confidence in God's mercy and kindness and faithfulness, even when we don't see it or understand it at the localized level of our own life. Very often, you and I, travel through the experiences of our lives without ever clearly seeing God's faithfulness and kindness and love. That doesn't mean it's not there. Probably in part, it means we're not looking in the right places. But, but the reality is we don't get the bird's eye view. We, we don't see into God's plans. But as we start to see into God's plans for others, because he's shown kindness and faithfulness there, we can be confident that he'll show kindness and faithfulness to us as well. So I I think that's the main response we should have here on a local level that we can say God was faithful to Naomi. He can be faithful to me. Now, because we are myopic, we're short-sighted, we can thank God that he's given us places like this to look to reaffirm his faithfulness and steadfast love. Okay? Ultimately, though, and, and if this hits you as cliche, get that thinking out of your mind because it's not cliche. Ultimately, 
the proof of God's faithfulness and steadfast love to you is the record of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you to provide new life, both now and in the new creation. Okay, I'll, I'll get to that more, but I, I have a bit of a concern that when we start to talk about the trials in our life and the hope that we have because Jesus died for us, there can be something in us that starts to rear its head and say, that's just cliche. You know, everyone says that and it, it actually doesn't matter that much. The fact that Jesus died for you is an everlasting proclamation of God's love and faithfulness to you. And don't let that get old. Don't, don't become numb to that reality and, and give people hope in Jesus. It's not a false hope and it's, it's not just a spiritual hope. It's a genuine and real hope that life will come wherever death is because Jesus conquered death on the cross. So on, that's on a local level. I think we need to respond to this story on a local, individualized level by recognizing that God is faithful in our lives, even if we can't fully sense it. But then on another level, on a local church level, a community level, I think the same exact thing is true. So Ruth's and Naomi's story is their story to be sure but the presence of these townspeople and these witnesses remind us that no individual story is just their story, but it's the story of a larger community. And as we have come to covenant together as a local assembly, we now have our story. So where one person's joblessness or family member's death or physical ailment is genuinely theirs, it's also ours. And, and where our church as a whole struggles to press forward in a revitalization effort, that's not just the church's story, it's also your story. Well, well, I want to say that these events of our lives are interconnected and we ought to think in terms of a community level so that when God shows himself faithful to someone who went through a terrible disease and found healing, it's not just their story, it's your story too. So where you might fail to have the eyes of faith to see God's faithfulness in your life, see that in the community. Where, where you might say, I am not making the kind of money that I need to provide for my family, and, and God's not faithful to me. Well, look at what God has done in this church to provide finances for a church and say, that's God's story for, in providing for me too. So, so God is faithful and let me lean into that reality and trust God's faithfulness, even if I'm not experiencing it in the individual way that I want to. So there's this individual horizon, but then there's this local community horizon where we lean into the death experiences, but also the life-giving experiences of the community. But then on a larger level, and, and maybe really the most important level, I think that we need to respond to this, recognizing our identity as a member of God's covenant community. This entire story has taken place in terms of God's old covenant people. Well, we identify as God's new covenant people, and it's the same God who's relating to his people in both stories. 
So as, as we start to think about God's faithfulness to saints who have gone before us, who some experienced martyrdom and some experienced great wealth, we tie ourselves into those stories and we speak their truths because it's God's truth. And so we do things like responsive readings in church from a statement of faith that Christians across the world are speaking because we're tying into this larger, real community. But even beyond that, we start to, when we doubt God's faithfulness because of the death we experience now, we turn to God's prophetic word to the entire community and we read that as a word to us. So when God gives hope of a new creation and of his presence with us forevermore, that's a hope for you and for I and me as an object of this covenant community. It's not a pie in the sky hope. It's a real hope that we're partaking in already and will partake in fully on the day to come. We lose sight of this all the time as we start to look for someone else's prophetic word of promise to meet our death experience. We do this as we look to a politician to give us a prophetic word of promise of what they will do to heal our death and suffering. We do this as we put false hopes in our employers who keep talking about that raise we'll get someday that will heal one area of weakness in our life. We do this when we start to capitulate to the fear of man because we think other people will give us the healing and rest that we need that comes only from God in his new creative work. So I I want to encourage you to respond to the story of Naomi by seeing yourself not just as an individual, but as part of this local community and part of God's new covenant community and walking into by faith the prophetic promises that he gives. Ruth read from Isaiah 25 that describes some of this new creation promise that brings total fullness to where there was death and emptiness and and where Elimelech and Naomi and their sons looked at Moab and said life and fullness and healing is there while Isaiah tells us that Moab will be trampled in its place. So so when we walk through these death experiences, don't look to the Moab of, of your government or of your employer or of anything else. Look to the God who promises and whose word will stand forever. So I think that the best way for us to And this reflection on Ruth is just to read a portion from Isaiah 25 again and to soak in this new creation hope that's promised to us. So I'm going to read the middle of Isaiah 25, verse 6 through verse 10. And and when I imagine Isaiah reading this, this this might not be right, but I, I recently listened to someone doing a a speech of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. And there are moments where there is just this loud declaration that that I have a dream. Well, I think that's what this on this mountain is doing. It's creating a vision of the mountain of the Lord, of God's presence with his people, 
So we should declare this with the kind of confidence that goes beyond just a dream to the recognition of a a reality that's yet to come. So Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. So let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the Lord's power will rest on his mountain. Father, we long for that day where we can say that your power is resting on your mountain, where you have taken away all of our hunger and replaced it with choice meat and vintage wine. We Look to that day where you will take away all of the death that we experience of death in these bodies and death of our loved ones and deaths of nations as genocide is carried out. And we will say that you've removed that from all nations and you've brought life that will last forever. We look to that day where you will take away all of our disgrace into where we have shame for our lowliness that will be removed and replaced with the glory of your son. Help us now to speak the words that we will speak then, that your power is real and that your kindness is true and that your faithfulness is everlasting. In Christ we pray. Amen.